Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's a stronger message coming along with uh, tone lucidity and it aligns, I think, better with the near-death experience. So in other words, something happens which clearly is physiological. Somebody is close to dying and that, of course, does something to the body. But does it therefore explain the tone the lucid episode? I don't think so, because it contradicts almost everything we know about the dependency of mind on brain, that when the brain is so severely dysfunctional, that suddenly somebody would rise up again, be here again. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. I'm very excited to welcome back my guest today, although you might be wondering, you might think, why is he back? We never heard him the first time. And that's because my Zoom video disappeared with this interview. However, it was such a great interview and such an important topic that I was lucky enough that Dr. Alexander Batyani agreed to join me again. Dr. Batyani is the director of the Research Institute for Theoretical Psychology and professional studies at Pasmani Peter University in Budapest. And he's a professor uh, of existential psycho psychotherapy at the Moscow Institute of Psychoanalysis in, um, where is that? Oh, Moscow, obviously in Russia and the director of the, uh, and the director of the Victor, Victor Frankl Institute in Vienna. And today he is here to talk about his book on terminal lucidity. So it's such an important topic. And I think it gives us so much information about consciousness and the mind and the brain that it felt like such a perfect fit for this podcast. So thank you and welcome back. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure to see you again. <laughs> you too. You too. We recorded this, I think, in like yes. July. So um yeah, it just didn't work. So we're back wonderful. together again. Um, so let's, yeah, exactly. In a, in a wonderful conversation. It was great the first time and now you get to hear <laughs> it the second time. So let's start with the basics, which is what is terminal lucidity and how do we do Terminal lucidity is a phenomenon which happens close to death. Um, and I'm interested in near-death experiences and I, and there's a certain overlap, but let me first define it. People 
patients who have been suffering from dementia or other severe, and I'm talking severe cognitive impairments, like they don't recognize family, they may even forgot their, their legal names and so on, um, forgot why they are at the hospital or nursing home. They, um, a, what seems to be a substantial number, about six to eight or even more percent of them do briefly return at the very last days or hours of their life before they die. Yeah. And what does it mean to return? It means a full return. We had, we conducted a large study and my database is growing almost weekly. And it means that they are suddenly fully back again. They, you know, the relatives come. Usually what happens is that there's a steep physiological decline and therefore the nursing home staff says, please come if you want to say farewell. I think now is the time. Yeah. So they come and what do they expect? They don't expect very much. In fact, yeah, because for a year or two, the daughter wasn't recognized. They didn't even know that they had grandchildren, all of them, you know, like in dementia, you forget a lot of things. And then suddenly, you know, when they enter and they know it's time to say farewell, they see their grandmother looking at them saying hello and calling them by name. Yeah. And being usually very terminal towards the end of life and lose it very clear again. Yeah. And then there's a last exchange. Memories are exchanged. Perhaps things need to be forgiven or, you know, somebody will say, thank you. These are very valuable last conversations. And it's from what I know, from what my, my um, study participants tell me, many are aware either intuitively or because even, or even more that this is going to be one of the very last, if not the last conversation. It usually is. Yeah. So, and what do you squeeze in, in these few hours or maybe even only minutes when somebody's unexpectedly there again, and at the same time at the point of leaving, no. So it's, a, it's a very dense <laughs> existential situation, if you wish. Right, because I'm sure you feel like this, I mean, you do, this is it. This is my last opportunity to connect, especially if they've been disconnected. We talk about patients who, who really had severe loss of memory. And now they are back and not only do they remember what happened to them, many of them, and I mean, a sizable number, also knows what's going to happen next, namely that they are going to die. How did how do you and the medical establishment explain uh, physiologically what is going on here? Is there an explanation? Not yet. And the point is, it's look, the phenomenon is as old as mankind. I mean, I've been ever since people took care of other people and said farewell to other people. Yeah. Um, it's been reported. And ever since my research has become better known and there were some media reports and so on, I received emails from India, from Africa, from Nigeria, from Nigeria, from different countries, from, uh, Iran to Persia and so on, telling me, well, there is a term for this. And then comes a very old term and it's from the year whatever BC. Yeah. So it has been around for a long time, but it had been forgotten for quite a while. I mean, the last time Western European and, yeah, and uh, doctors looked at this was during Victorian times when medicine still was, I think, a bit gruesome when it came to, to techniques, but um, when it came to taking care of patients, 
they're, I mean, if you look at the case histories of the Victorian doctors, they're beautiful. They're almost poetic. Yeah. They're literally pieces on a patient and they, they, they observed it quite a lot. And then depending on where they come from, philosophically speaking, they would interpret the phenomenon. So in Victorian England, most people still were Christians and to them it was a clear case of the soul being released from the body. Yeah. If you go back to Indian literature, it's the Atma, so the, the actual self, so to speak, which never became ill, which never can become ill, which will never die, which was never born. And now, yeah, the eternal, exactly, the eternal, the eternal self, oh, oh yeah, reemerges again. Yeah. Um, after being overshadowed by brain disease for a long time. Yeah. And, I have the goosebumps when you say that. It's like you think of this soul being trapped in this ill body and what, and then the release mm. of that and what that, just that. Right. Freedom. I mean, that's so now when it comes to modern times in our days, yeah, um, the idea of an eternal soul, never born, never die is not actually what you read in the medical textbooks. So, um, <laughs> for sure not, but I, I can tell you, I mean, I've, what I find wonderful is that scientific research nowadays looks at terminal lucidity once again, or maybe for the first time. Yeah. In other words, um, I think anyway, a few years ago, there was a workshop at the NIH in, in Washington, in, in Bethesda. I was invited along with a few experts, six or so who were, I think the, the, a few people studying, pioneers studying um, terminal lucidity. And I should say that maybe they, maybe it's not usual to talk about the soul, but to even look at death and dying with the benevolent eye of something happens, which is utterly unexpected. Oh, already is quite a lot. It's not what we, you know, I mean, for a long time, death has been seen as, you know, the defeat of the medical establishment, of the, of the medical profession. Yeah. And then I sometimes wonder. Right. As if there's some way they can make us live forever. Or if it was something awful that people die. I mean, you know, but it's, unfortunately, and it's, it's the most natural thing to do when you are born, you're going to die. Yeah. And, and there was a mismatch between reality and, and so, how some, um, in the medical field viewed death and dying. And I think this is changing. It changed, I think, in the 1970s because there were two persons, Elisabeth Kübler-Ross, who was the founding mother, so to speak, of the psychiatry of death and dying. And for the first time, you see pictures, photos, which are unheard of in this time, yeah, where the medical doctor, in this case Kübler-Ross, hugs a patient who's going, who's dying and says, I can't help you medicine wise, but I can be here as a human being. And that is a great step forward. No. And the other was Raymond Moody, who, who coined the term near death experience. And ever since there's an undercurrent, I would say in the field of death and dying, that there's a certain warmth, I would say a certain willingness to understand that there are going to be things which are very hard to understand. Yeah. And of course, to come back to your question, what's the physiological explanation of terminal acidity? Quite frankly, it's unlikely that we will find one. And there's one strong reason for that. 
if there was only one disease, let's say Alzheimer's, and they came back, then you could say, okay, it seems to be a feature of Alzheimer's that maybe at the last stages, suddenly something very unexpected happens, like a remission. But we have patients with brain tumors. We have patients with, um, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury. We have different times of, uh, different types of dementia. So there's not one single disease which comes along with TL, uh, with terminal lucidity, TL for short. But there are so many different diseases and yet still it does happen. Yeah. And that makes it very, very unlikely that there's one explanation for it, a physiological one, because the mechanisms of repair would have be, would, would be, would need to be very different. Right. So do you believe it's a physiological experience, experience or spiritual experience? Uh, it can be both. Like, I mean, as long as we are alive in the sense of, you know, embodied, so to speak, yeah, whatever happens to us also happens. I mean, if you see something beautiful, yeah, you encounter beauty. Is beauty a mere brain function? Of course not. And yet you see, you need to have eyes and visual cortex to see. And I think obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but seemingly something happens close to death, which is new which has not yet been part of the textbooks. I think the near-death experience is very similar because here too, you have complex cognition, you have beautiful insights, you have, you know, also light in unlikely places if you want, yeah? At a time when somebody has a, is having a heart attack or respiratory arrest, in the brain, I mean, evolutionary speaking, what you need in such a state is not that you are, you know, spaced out in beauty, but that you should survive and fight to survive. Yeah. And yet what we get is all these beautiful insights and so on. Yeah. Like similar to a near death. In both, yeah, it's, it's in both. I mean, there's a huge overlap if you ask me. Yeah? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So, terminal lucidity only occurs at the end of one's life. It's not like someone 
with dementia or another illness suddenly has a memory, like is reported to have this lucidity at other points. It's only that end of life experience. In this extent, yeah. I mean, there are good days and bad days for normal function people, but also for demented people. Yeah. And there, you know, it's coming and going to different degrees. Yeah. But the full remission, the total return as if there was never a diagnosis as in my database is death specific. And how common is it? You know, the, I mean, not everybody experiences no, it. No. Right? And thank you for asking this. Very, Amy, thank you. That's very important because I don't want to raise too many hopes where it's not justified. That would be a crime in a way, yeah? um, psychologically speaking. Right. Right. People are just waiting bedside for the moment and then it doesn't happen. Because some of the media outlets, you know, they try sometimes they're overdoing it a bit. Somebody telling me I'm sitting here with my iPhone video function is on and we're just waiting for him to come back. And I think, please, no. I mean, if it comes, it comes. Yeah. Right. And it's a gift. Hmm. It's a gift. And you don't walk around demanding a gift. You are grateful when it comes and you accept it when it doesn't come. Hmm. I know it's a hard lesson, but it's a lesson life teaches us in many other regards as well. It's not, it's not TA specific if you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How often does it happen? Now, there's one prospective study in which case you don't study retrospect, you know what happened, but you take a collective of 100 patients, follow them through and see how many of them will display terminal lucidity. And um, the only larger study I do know is uh, from New Zealand and they're about 6 to 8%, which is which is not a tiny group. I mean, it's almost 10%. Peter Fennick in Britain claims a much higher number. I don't know, about 20%. So it's... Is that specifically demented patients or is that like cancer patients who are very near the end and, and who have yeah. been kind of comatose for a while? In the prospective or? study, the, um, there were a few dementia cases, but many of them which had... Um, brain involvement. So like a brain cancer or things like that? When the kidney, when you, when you're, when you're really at the end stage, many organs can poison and basically lead to a severe steep cognitive decline. And that happened in some of these cases. And still they made, so I think it's very hard to say. It seems to be a high one digit number in percentage. So eight, nine percent. Yeah. Other groups report a much higher number. But I think if we settle for that, that would be realistic as far as I know. Yeah. Has have there been studies of this in children? Like children who have been sick with brain cancers or I mean I know usually kids don't get sick with No, dementia. not specifically, but I do have the youngest patient in my database was a ten year old girl with a brain tumor, inoperable brain tumor. And she was away for, in the sense of she was just, you know, she didn't react when called by name and so on for, for a couple of months. And on her last day, she was just back. And that was very heart moving. And she, she said farewell to her parents. And, um, yes. Wow. So it's, it seems like it spans all ages, all diseases, and we don't have a medical 
a full medical understanding of it. I guess you'd need to be in the brain as it was happening to be able to see and monitor what's happening, right? Like they need to be in a scan of some sort. Of course, you would like to study it and you would like to do it. But on the other hand, I mean, we die once, at least we know that we know we die once, yeah? And during one lifetime, so to speak. That we remember, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, so during one right. lifetime, we die once. Let's do like this, yeah? And... And if you have, let's say, a few hours, would you like, I mean, would you even allow to, to have your, you know, a relative being put in a CT scan or, you know, in a brain scan? Of course not. And it, and if you, if you only half your worth as, as a researcher and you have some heart and you're not only a brain, you would never want to do that. However, desperately we would like to know what's happening in the brain. It will not, it's, it's very difficult to say, but we can say the likelihoods of it occurring, you know, if you, if you saw a picture, if somebody saw a picture of a brain struck by Alzheimer's, late advanced, advanced Alzheimer's, it would look, I mean, that, that could reverse to normal, physiologically speaking, is like uncooking a boiled egg. You know, the tissue is so severely damaged. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And in such a short time, there would be millions, maybe billions of neurons would need to regrow and they would need to do it in an orderly fashion. So as you know, in my book, I look a little bit at the physiology of it, but I think that uh, there's a stronger message coming along with uh, tone lucidity and it aligns, I think, better with the near-death experience. So in other words, something happens mm -hmm which clearly is physiological. Somebody is close to dying and that of course does something to the body. Yeah. But does it therefore explain the, t the eternal lucid episode? I don't think so because, um, because it, it contradicts almost everything we know about the dependency of mind on brain that when the brain is so severely dysfunctional that suddenly somebody would rise up again, be here again. Yeah. So in the near-death experience research, I know medical professionals explain it as it's a release of DMT and that that could be why people experience, have that experience of bliss or connecting to something bigger than themselves or God or, <clears throat> I mean, I don't necessarily think that's it, but it, would that be a similar potential rationale for terminal lucidity that those same chemicals are released? Or it doesn't really fit like that. Okay, you see me smiling because ever I mean, the near-death experience had so many explanations, and the point is they always catch one glimpse of it, yeah, one aspect. But the full-blown experience, it, it, and there's also and DMT. There are different possibilities. We talk about patients who are unconscious, who have heart, you know, um, cardiac arrests and respiratory arrests. And if you know what's happening to our brain, yeah, I think you could, you could swallow a cup of acid, but if you have a cardiac arrest, you wouldn't notice any difference because you need higher cognitive function to experience the, the effect of these, you know, what, it, whatever it is, endorphins or whatever. Yeah. So this would be the first. The second, there has been some research being done, uh, where it seems that there's almost like an, like a surge of electricity, of, of, um, brain activity close to death. Yeah. And there, and some people say, well, this must be then the key to the near death experience. But 
I think these were only epileptic, uh, epileptic patients. They had no near-death experience. At least they didn't report any. And that alone would suffice to say this is not your average pa patient, nor did these patients report a near-death experience. So if you have the brain activity but not the experience, obviously it's not a one-to-one. -one. You see, it's, it's, it's not a very good explanation. Yeah. Um, and, but there are some aspects and I briefly talk about them in the book. And I will, I think, you know, there are some aspects, they're like deathbed visions and there are aspects in the near death experience, which seem to connect to objective reality. Whereas if you, if you are just intoxicated by, you know, brain substances, yeah, then you wouldn't be able to, let's say, see in many of these patients, the majority, in fact, yeah, a slight majority claim that when, like in the near-death near death experience, that when they have been uh, dead, so to speak, they did see what's happening around them. Now, that's just a claim. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a number of them say things which are pretty accurate and which are, which are right. They talk about, you know, the comic... The, the Mickey Mouses on the socks of the, of the doctor treating them, for example. How would they ever know if they, if, so there is something objective. Yeah. There is something which is. Right. Or the person in the next room who was doing, bought a candy bar from exactly. a candy machine. Bruce Grayson, like a colleague of mine with whom together he's a great mm -hmm. author on, on after yeah. the book after, he tells the story. After. Mm -hmm. He had one near death um, experience. Uh, who I think woke up and said to his doctor, you know, I had a near death experience, but I was clearly dreaming because I was dreaming that you in, in the ER, in the emergency room ran around like this. Yeah. And, and he thought I must be, you know, this is clearly an hallucination, but the doctor went pale because what he does is, you know, when you're in the emergency room, you clean your hands that you don't. Yeah. And in order not to get his hands dirty, he tells his assistants, now take the knife, get the syringe and so on. Yeah. And he does exactly this movement. Yeah. So how could the patient know if not by somehow perceiving it? Yeah. And no drug makes you see when you are unconscious. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. So what do you think that, that these experiences tell us about consciousness beyond death? Like where consciousness resides. Mm. I mean, clearly in our everyday life. These are the big questions of life, <laughs> exactly. right? As, as the existential psychologist. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's the, the answer is straightforward and yet not. Yeah. I would say that it depends on when you look at us. During our everyday lives, our mind is utterly dependent on the brain. And you only need, you know, if you drink too much alcohol, it's not your brain which is affected, it's your mind which is affected via the brain. Yeah. And if you're very sleepy, you wouldn't, you know, if, you've, if one has a fever, one wouldn't perhaps do a, an important investment decision because you know that your cognitive capacity when tired or under fever is not ideal. So there seems to be, and we, we, do, we don't need the textbooks for this. Yeah. Everyday life suffices there's a strong overlap between what our brain does and what we do but and bruce grayson had this idea i think it was the first he said you, you observe this everywhere in nature 
that there seems to be a, a law and nobody can change it. But then if you move to the outer limits of existence, let's say very small objects in physics, suddenly everything changes to quantum physics or very fast, you know, relativity and so on. And maybe death is also, no, not maybe, death is also an extreme condition of the human person. And suddenly what is dependence of mind on brain in everyday life turns out to be utter independence. And you see what I'm saying Yeah, Death is the test case of what we believe where our consciousness resides. If consciousness was just a brain function, then the trajectory would be clear. The brain shuts down and so does the mind and so does the self and so does our consciousness. If there's more to consciousness... Right, it's like when you turn off your computer at life, at night. But if there's something like dualism, in other words, you, you think that there's something about consciousness which is irreducible, which is not a brain function, then death makes a very different prediction, namely that, you know, there might be decline for the body, but re-emergence of the soul. And this is exactly what we observe, both in eternal lucidity and in indidactic and in similar phenomena as well. Yeah. So if you ask me, and I, I'm very clear now, I don't know because these questions are, we are just at the beginning. Yeah. But I think we know enough to say that there's a good reason for hope that there might be something like consciousness beyond brain. And I make this in, at the, in the last chapter of this book. Because, you know, so often students and colleagues tell me, no, Alex, please don't be careful. Don't be a scientist. Just tell us what does it mean? Does it mean that we survive death? Yes or no? Right. Yeah. And, and then I say, look, I think this should remain. But what is the we? Exactly. Right? What is and the who, we? Do we survive death? Is it a collective consciousness that survives? Is okay, it... that I can't answer. What I can answer is that it seems to me, <laughs> and I think I can, yeah, Without overdoing, I don't want to make too strong claims, but know what the near-death experiences tell us? That everything is remembered. And um, and I've, I find this very stunning. And then I talked in a hospice with an elderly lady, and she had, you know, some on and off experiences, if you want. And she said, you know, it, it's clear that um, if you remember everything, and there's, you know... In the near-death experience, people not only remember what they did, what is even more important, and it only happens in, during the NDE, they do know and remember how it affected those around them. Yeah? So not only do I remember saying a kind word to somebody, but I also remember how it is like if I say that I said a kind word to somebody who was in need. Yeah? And this tells us that, I mean... How much and how much did nature or, or existence or God, however you want, invest that we know that it makes a difference? It's not in vain. Even if nobody says thank you at that time, yeah, somehow it's guarded and sheltered from being forgotten, you know, and just it's gone, it's over. Nothing is irretrievably lost. It's somehow it's, it's, 
is sheltered, yeah. And in, in our, our near-death experiences tell us precisely that. They tell us no word is too mundane, no deed is too unimportant, not to be remembered at the end. And not to be remembered for, for information's sake, but for a spiritual sake. It was good that you were here, or, or you made a mistake, and now maybe time to ask for forgiveness. And, And that can happen also after, you know, during a near-death experience, yeah. So, and people come back so... Right, and that your impact matters whatever you choose it to be, whatever you put out there. It's also an important point because in the NDE literature, you sometimes get the feeling that the NDE and death must be so beautiful, then why bother hanging around here, yeah? And then... What the NDEs will tell us, no, because you, you, you won't have this life review if you didn't live before, so to speak. Yeah? If you didn't make the best of it, if you didn't invest your kindness, your benevolence and so on. Yeah. So, and I think even if we don't know everything, but we know enough, yeah, to say it's worthwhile, it's meaningful and, and we are needed. Yeah. Our kindness also. Do you think that the belief that there, like, if we ever get to a place where we can scientifically prove, I mean, it's amazing to me that there's so many people who report mm -hmm. having these experiences and yet somehow science discounts it as reality or it can't be. But if we ever get to a place where it is confirmed that consciousness exists mm -hmm. beyond death, how do you think that can impact how we live? That's an excellent question. I must admit, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the problem is that merely having an afterlife does not release us from the responsibility to be tolerant here and to be kind. And sometimes if people are too convinced of something, we don't need to look far. Um, They do very bad things. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder whether the ambiguity and the uncertainty is not something we should try to relish. I mean, everything from a human perspective is, uh, is a perhaps. I mean, what we know, we know for the time being, unless it's falsified or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a certain openness. Right. And I think, um, The need for certainty is totally understandable because that's how we are and how our brains are built and how our cognitive apparatus is built. And yet maybe that's not something we should, we should know. I mean, perhaps, um, and I think it's, it's for a good reason that, um, I also said there might be hope, there might be reason to have faith in an afterlife. Yeah. But to know that there's an afterlife or to claim that we have proof You know, proof has a very clear definition and, and it can't be so cheap. Yeah. There, you know, even some book titles, I don't want to criticize them. I think maybe it sells better. Yeah. But how would you prove an afterlife? I mean, by which <laughs> measurement technique, so to speak? Yeah. You would need to have an immaterial measurement device. Yeah. You can say, having said that, you can say that we do have such an immaterial measurement device namely our love yeah and if if somebody we love move, you know goes you know uh, dies we may feel a connection which can be overwhelmingly evidential to the person experiencing it 
but it's not something you can share. If you go to, you know, at a lecture hall, university and say, I know that my whatever grandmother lives on because I, I feel her every day. Yeah. And there are meaningful coincidences, which I believe are beyond coincidence. Then these persons will tell you, yes, that's what you claim. And, and I think that's fine. Yeah. It's fine that we don't know, but it's equally important that we take seriously those witnesses who say I experienced something extraordinary. Right. Because isn't that discounting someone's reality? I mean, I know that then we can kind of get into psychological talk here about what is reality and what is not reality. But but I think when you have a, a person who is typically um, grounded, you know, has good reality testing, is not reporting normal hallucinations or um, visual or auditory, and they have these experiences, discounting it can really undermine, I think, their sense of, of maybe trust of their own sense of knowing reality, because for them, it, I mean, I've had these experiences, so I know how real they feel, as real as you and I are talking, that is my, have been my experiences. In, in such cases, I sometimes wonder who is the victim. Because those who experience something beautiful, they've been bestowed with a gift. Yeah, Nobody will be able to take it away from them. How do we know? Because in the early cases of near-death experiences, some doctors didn't even believe that such a thing exists. Now we know better. It's in the textbooks. Yeah, but the, And nobody can take your love or your experience away from you. But the one on the other side who's, you know, who's trying to debunk it, who doesn't take you seriously, is living a fairly impoverished life because to be to be forced or compelled by your ideology, let's say materialism, whatever, to not believe, even if it stares you in the face, and, not be, and to not believe someone's with, with, you know, testimony is a very sad state. But you know what? Um, in order to... I tell the story in my book about how Rachmaninoff died because I think it's so very important. It's a great lesson also for the students. I mean, you know, Rachmaninoff was one of Russia's greatest composers of the last century and he moved to Beverly Hills like many who had to fled Stalin's terror. Yeah. And when he moved into his last house in Beverly Hills, he said something very clairvoyant. He said, this is going to be my last place on my last home on earth. This is where I'm going to die. And then he was on his last concert tour and he fell gravely ill, what turned out to be lung cancer. So he had to be brought home to Beverly Hills. And there he was on his deathbed, surrounded by assistants and wife and so on. And everything was beautifully smooth, which is great when somebody is dying that, you know, everything, you know, silence and the heartbeat grew irregular, breathing very slow. It's astonishing how slow, you know, dying people can breathe. And everybody thought now it's going to be over. And suddenly Rachmaninoff opens his eyes and says, can you hear the music? And they look at each other and nobody hears anything. And they say, no, there is no music. And he says, yes, but can't you hear its beauty, this beautiful music? And the others look at each other and everybody says, tell him, no, there is no music. And then he says, okay, so then the music is only in my head. 
and he lays down and dies, closing his eyes forever. Yeah. And, you know, it's a moving story, but you know, the, the moving part of it, the sad part of it is the insistence of those around his deathbed to say there is no music rather than saying, I can't hear the music. Would you like to tell us what you are hearing? I mean, here's Russia's, Russia's, one of Russia's greatest composers dying and they don't, they don't inquire. And if somebody comes to us and tells us, you know, I've been visited by my grandmother and you know, this patient is 80. So the grandmother mother must be, you know, <laughs> how, whatever, 160. It can't be. Then don't say that can't be. Say, what did she tell you? And sometimes, you know, when patients, when you enter the room in the last stages, they, they can, as you say, totally lose it, but they say things which are very unlikely. Like, you know, I've been visited by, and then comes somebody who's, you know, a widow visited by a husband. And then they might ask, can't you see them? And I think the honest answer would be, no, but that doesn't mean a thing. It's, you know, these days you see things I don't see, but would you like to tell me, is she asking something for me to do? Right. My dog smells things that I don't smell. And who are we to say that we've got the only access to reality? Yeah. For definitely we don't. And uh, so I think the, I think the correct answer would be, I don't see it or I don't see it like that, but would you like to tell me? Mm. And then we inquire more. Yeah. And at least we validate a person. And if it's utter nonsense, you know, I've got, I had one patient in my database who claimed that she received new shoes. Now, if you're in a nursing home in bed, the likelihood of receiving new shoes and there, nobody saw them. Yeah. But the language was so symbolic because then these were her last words. I think I will go for a walk. And then she died. I mean, there's also symbolic language involved. Yeah. So it need not be, you know, literal, but it could be figurative language and so on. There's so much happening. And, and if we relearn to look, you know, death always was the place or the space where things happened, which are unlikely and which tell us much more about who we are. And if we then enter you know, I mean, medicine, as we said, didn't look at death so carefully. Yeah? And then to claim that we know everything when we clearly don't is a bit premature. Yeah. So I have two yeah. more questions. Well, one is a question and one I just want to read something <laughs> about the book. Have you, from the book, have you ever experienced a terminal lucidity that results in a spontaneous remission? You mean, for, you mean ever after since? Or? Yes. Yeah. Like dying, dying, like sort of like a Anita Morjani, but in a. Ah, um, uh -huh, okay. No. Like a like. No, no. And to continue. No, no. I mean, once again, I, I um, terminal lucidity, in as far as I know, is terminal in the sense of it ends in death. Yeah, um, and I never experienced basically would would be a spontaneous remission of dementia. Um, no. Okay, I just wanna I just wanna end with this um, yeah. from your book. Can I really believe that the amazing gift of my conscious existence has no future? No, I cannot. This incredible mind of ours relates in mysterious ways to the brain and can experience human love and friendship, the astounding beauty of nature. 
the intellectual stimulation and pleasure we derive from the enjoyment and understanding of our cultural heritage. This is a challenging adventure. This life is a challenging adventure whose meaning must be discovered. And it is embedded in these two events, birth and death, that I'm more convinced than ever of this. Transcend both the realm of the biological and this wonderful instrument. This is a quote by John C. Eccles, Nobel Prize laureate for neurophysiology, and in many ways a role model for my scientific work. I must, and I humbly say, so I tried to follow in the shadow of his footsteps, if you want. But um, he was a great neuroscientist who started out believing that, you know, study the brain and you understand everything about the human being. And to end it up with this, he was, I think, 92 or 91 When we had a phone conversation, I, he allowed me to record it. And the quote is from, a, from the recorded, lecture, uh, uh, recorded conversation. After we discussed many things, I didn't even ask him about that. I had some questions on his last book, which had been published six months before. And, and when I was about to thank him for answering and I felt, you know, he was tired. He was again, 90 something. He, he, On his own, continues, you know, there are things I would like to tell you. Basically, you, young student, I was a young student, mm -hmm. um, you should know. Yeah. And that is what he said that, that who we are is not what our brain is. We are not something like a brain or tissue. We are someone. And he basically said that there are two entry points of transcendent, of the transcendent, of, you know, of the, of the non-material. And this is when we are born. And when we are going to die, when we are dying, yeah. And he was, he was very clear. It was very convincing if somebody who's 92 and he died half a year later or so uh, tells you this with the conviction, which is 100%. There was not a shadow of a doubt. He was totally clear that the adventure continues. So from one extreme to the <laughs> yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, but a very productive career in between. And he wrote a book with Sir Karl Popper um, on dualism, on the idea that we are a soul having a body. And, um, and during our lifetimes, we are embodied souls. And then the release. Yeah, yeah. He was totally clear. Well, Dr. Batyani, thank you so much. I'm so glad we did this again because it was just an just as enlightening this time as it was the first time. Um, if people want to learn more about your work, more about what you do, where can they find out more? Uh, there's a Goodreads page. There's an Amazon author. Just Google. I mean, what you will find, unfortunately, is a lot of boring scientific stuff. But you'll also find some, you know, normal interviews <laughs> such as this one. And and I'm around in the, on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And the book is great. It's so easily readable and it's got like really interesting stories. It reads a bit like after mm -hmm. in that way, like just sharing some of those stories of people's experiences, which are so powerful. And while can't guarantee them for everybody, we can certainly yes. hope that if you have a loved one who is in their end of life and has not been um, present psychologically for a while that there is a chance that you might see that glimpse of them again so thank you, thank you so very much. much for your time thank you again. amy thank you it's been great talking to you like what you heard today and want to hear more wondering what comes next and what it all means 
Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.